Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Conor O'Gara. No will today. He is traveling back from Europe. My goodness, we have so much to talk about on this Sunday morning. This sport, man, it <laughs> just never ceases to amaze me. Uh, again, recording this early Sunday morning, I stayed up for the Stoops to A&M drama that was the three hours that we had where it looked like Mark Stoops was going to become the next coach at Texas A&M, a move that was uh, equal parts intriguing, head-scratching, whatever you want to call it, and then finding out at the 11th hour that this wasn't going to happen. Matt Jones was on top of that. And you always kind of was, you're, you're sitting there wondering like, all right, well, Matt Jones hasn't weighed in yet, and Billy Lucci had, hadn't weighed in yet. So when those two heavy hitters in their respective spaces finally um, reported on this, you, you just – that that to me was was telling that we were kind of waiting on pins and needles for those two. Um, so as of right now, TBD on the A and M job that is not going to to Mark Stoops. I do believe that that as of what um, Saturday afternoon, early Saturday evening, really had a, a a very realistic chance of happening based on everything that we had heard. I mean, even based on Stoops' tweet, looks like it was going to happen. And then for whatever reason, maybe it was difference in opinion among those A&M decision makers or just Stoops really having some some cold feet at the 11th hour, realizing this wasn't the, the job for him. It's not happening. And that's that's the ultimate end result. And also, we're not going to get as in-depth with the coaching hires. Ross Dellinger reported that Mississippi State is expected to hire Jeff Levy. Um, nothing final on that as of this recording. So I think I'll just what I'll do is I'll save any actual hiring news for the midweek pod just so I don't get cold taked, even though I will with how crazy things are moving after the last college football Saturday of the regular season. Um, but you should go check out SaturdayDownSouth.com. Just shameless plug. I wrote about a thousand words on Stoops Day and M last night that I had to wake up this morning, tweak it and write about why it was such a weird move in, in the first place. So do me a favor, go, go bump up the numbers and check that one out. The old Michael Scott vasectomy, snip, snap, snip, snap. Maybe it's a little bit more reminiscent of when they were trying to shut down Scranton and Michael and Dwight waited outside David Wallace's house and pretended like they actually did something. I don't know, but nonetheless, things are happening. Things are not happening. It's all entertaining. Let's start with actual football. One of the wildest Iron Bowl games ever. Of course, there are very few plays in this, this, this crazy sport of ours that can make a neutral observer like myself. It doesn't have any gambling interest. I'm not rooting for anything specific. I'm, I'm really not. But there are very few things that can make a neutral observer leap out of their chair and let's just say make his wife and um, feeding baby become very aware that something is happening. And that was one of those plays. Jalen Milrow to Isaiah Bond, fourth and goal from the 31, the 31. Instant classic, instant Iron Bowl lore that play will live in. The poise of Jalen Milrow was unbelievable. That was not a Hail Mary type play. It had a different feel to it for a variety of reasons. And I, I know Jalen Milrow afterwards, you know, he says what you're supposed to do. You fall back on training. That's what you do. You know what else Jalen Milrow didn't really do early in the season is fall back on that training. 
So I, I don't think it was by any means a, a given that the player that we saw in September, maybe even the player that we saw in early October, I don't think it was a given that he would throw an accurate pass in that moment, in that spot. Uh, and, and look, I get it. A lot has been made about the decision to rush two, to spy one. Why did Auburn do that? It's kind of the equivalent of why didn't Kentucky just guard Grant Hill on the inbounds play? And why did they let him have a baseball throw to Christian Leitner for that game when he shot in the Elite Eight? It's, I get it. I do. I really do. If you rush five and Milrow somehow gets into the end zone because he makes two men miss in space at the five yard line or something like that, you get blasted for that too. It's, I don't want to say it's a no win situation for Ron Roberts when that happens. The DC is always going to get clown. It's just inevitable. It's still fourth and 31. (laughs) That's fourth and 31. You load the end zone, you spy. I'll give him a little bit of a pass. Obviously, we're gonna we're gonna play the results no matter what. That wasn't the most startling thing, though, to me on that play and the way that it developed was that AM played a drop eight, borderline drop nine in coverage. I guess you could call it with the spy. The most startling thing was Isaiah Bond had single coverage. How in the world was he the only one? DJ James, rather, how was he the only one in that spot where he was the only Auburn player? who could have realistically disrupted that play. And that's your top corner. In most instances, you would probably take that if you're Auburn. But I I just don't get how that happens on that side of the field. It looked like DJ James thought that Bond was going back to the middle of the field and that that he was about to try and make a move to keep the play alive and Milrow was going to roll out maybe to his left, just as he had done previously in in that very drive to try and make a play but man still he was just a step late in reacting and just made one wrong step dj james makes one wrong step on that play and that's not supposed to happen in that spot obviously but it's an incredible play by isaiah bond maybe got away with a slight push off auburn fans probably think he got away with a slight push off bama fans probably think it's within the guidelines of the rules you know how this works but It's just, it's one of those plays that you just don't ever expect to happen in that spot on either side of the ball. And Saban can say all all he wants that Bama practices that play. I'd love to know how many times it worked out like that in practice. I really would. I can't imagine that number is particularly high, especially with those Bama corners with Terry and Arnold, with Kool-Aid McKinstry, DJ James, very qualified to be able to make a spot in that play. And I'm not saying that he deserves to be, uh, the the goat in the negative sense for that because there are obviously a lot of other instances that cost Auburn a chance to win what would have been just a monumental game and I know officiating horrible horrible all around absolutely terrible there the the face mask epidemic with officials it, it needs to end because we're just going to have someone's head get get ripped off entirely and we're going to have a headless football player and officials are going to be out there like, no, I didn't see it. I don't know what happened. That one early in the game was so bad, just so bad. And Gene Steratour has the gall to get on the broadcast and try and tell us that the officials aren't looking at the guy getting the helmet ripped off of his head. And say what you want about Gary. Last SEC on CBS, regular season game for Gary. You're not. You're going to hear him again next week on the SEC championship call. But shout out to Gary for stepping in and interrupting Gene in that moment. And saying, 
Well, then what is he looking at? What, what, what do you mean he's not looking at that? Just horrible, horrible. The officiating was so bad all around. And I think Bama fans and Auburn fans have every reason to feel frustrated that, that a game of that magnitude was called that horribly. But whatever. I don't, I don't want to get into a diatribe and pretend this was all about officiating. It'll be remembered for Bama keeping its playoff hopes alive, even though ESPN win probability told us that there was a less than point, there was a 0.1% chance. I, man, I look, I'll say that a little bit tongue in cheek. ESPN, FPI, and analytics, just maybe sit out the rest of the college football season. Just sit out everything um, for the rest of the time. I got my brother texting me on Sunday morning saying, wait a minute, ESPN is telling me that Ohio State still has a 57% chance to make the playoff? What? <laughs> uh, no, no, uh-uh. not happening. ESPN, FPI is also saying that Ohio State is better than Michigan. So take that for what it is. Um, and it, also, it's the Iron Bowl. Normal metrics do not apply. This is the game of weird. And it just felt the more the more you watched of that game and as Auburn stayed close and had a lead late, that something weird was going to happen. You just didn't know what it was going to look like and which side it was going to benefit. A few lost in the shuffle things that got us to that play. The muff punt with Coy Moore, five minutes left. If Auburn just receives the punt, just fair catches the punt and takes over, you're up 24 to 20. If you can squeeze out a field goal with a three-minute drive, let's just be conservative. Or even if you could just take three minutes off the clock, which I think is realistic in that spot. Auburn had no desire to throw the football whatsoever. Peyton Thorne completed five passes all night. He completed five passes all night. And Auburn was running the football really, really well. So you would have felt... If you're Auburn, like you could take some time off the clock, make Jalen Milrow go the entire length of the field to try and score a touchdown to tie this game and force overtime, maybe a la Bryce Young two years ago. Instead, though, Coymore loses his footing. The college football gods decide that it is an Auburn stay, and Alabama fans are saying, for once, they decided that. Um, Freeze apparently didn't realize that it was – Coy Moore and not Keontae Scott, both wearing number zero. Even the official book, I looked at that. I was following along with that. Had Keontae Scott on that punt return, and it was actually Coy Moore. Auburn confirmed that after the fact. Auburn Butte Porters were trying to get to the bottom of that because it's a very pivotal moment. And credit the CBS broadcast crew for being on top of that, that it was indeed Coy Moore, and they had a million shots of him on the sideline with every single play, of course, to be expected. But think about this. After all that happens, Auburn still had an opportunity to get out of this. Third and 20 from the 29, Bama's down four. So Bama needs a touchdown. Milrow takes off on that play. And Pritchett and Milrow have this huge collision a yard shy. And then Bama doesn't sneak on fourth and inches. Pitches to Roy Dell Williams, who's just been running so hard really the last few weeks and as a guy that is going to be need to be on that Georgia scouting report in the SEC championship. And he converts on fourth down the trust that they put him in that spot. Um, that's one of the reasons why Alabama had a chance to win this game, but second and goal, the botched snap 18 yard loss. Milrow falls on it. This is something that has plagued Bama all year. Even going back to the middle Tennessee game, Milrow's first miraculous play of this season was on a botched snap and how Bama, a team of, uh, 
of this regard that is competing for a playoff spot continues to struggle with such an elementary issue like snapping the football, that part is baffling. Really, really baffling. And then on the very next play, Jalen Milrow crosses the line of scrimmage and throw, and he's throwing it past the line. <laughs> thinking, there's no way this is happening. There's just no way. Bama is not built for this. This is finally going to come to an end. This run that Bama has been on post-Texas, the dreams will die at Jordan-Hare. And look, I just I never know what to expect with this game until the final clock hits zero. And they made about, I don't know, 25 jokes about one second being put back on the clock. They did at the end of the first half. They kept making that one on the 10, year, 10 years removed from the kick six. Man, you just never know. You you just never know. Saban said this was the first time that he remembered that weird stuff going in their favor. I, I would argue Bryce Young two years ago driving, what, 98, 99 yards, whatever it was. Uh, I, I would argue that qualifies as weird things kind of going your way. Did Bama get away with the holding penalty in the end zone? Yeah, probably. But nonetheless... The weirdness that was that game, a four-overtime game with a Brian Harson-led Auburn team that was in a free fall, that day it did benefit Bama, and this day it did benefit Bama. Uh, look, you knew New Mexico State would not matter on the Auburn side. I kept saying that over and over. Even though I said, I think Bama's going to win this game, and I think they're going to find a way to cover the spread and win like a 31-14 to 14 type game, in which it feels a lot closer than that. I, you just... You can't assume anything when it comes to projecting Auburn based on past performance when Alabama is going to be on the table. That's that's something that we have all learned from from this team is that it's just not a good parameter to use the previous 11 games. Think about this, too. They share this stat on SEC final. And uh, sorry, Auburn fans, this one's going to twist the knife that much more for you. There were... 90 situations in which a team has attempted to go for it on third or fourth down in the last two seasons. So, yeah, 90 situations in which a team is attempting a third and 30 or fourth and 30 or longer in the last two seasons. 90 spots like that. And Bama became the first one to convert that in a two-year stretch. And it happened with playoff hopes on the line. On fourth down, in that moment, in in the final minute, I mean, of course it did. Why why wouldn't that be saved for that moment? I'm just still, I'm I'm stunned that this happened. Absolutely stunned. Herb Street and Fowler reacting the way that they did in the booth from Canesville. If you saw the tweet from our friend Amanda Brooks over at ESPN PR, uh, that clip was so great. All of us watching that game without rooting interest, that was the genuine reaction. It seemed like the college football world had watching this. And Bama just finds a way. Bama finds a way. I will bang this drum until the drum has nothing left. They are never afraid of close games. Ever. 24 SEC games in the last three years for Bama. 18 of them. One score games in the fourth quarter. It is a testament to Nick Saban and his legacy, even if he doesn't win a national championship in this three-year window. But it is a testament to him and his legacy that in that stretch, he has now gone 21-3 and in SEC play. You can't tell me that's a coincidence. And this team that we said in September 
Oh boy. Eight and four, nine and three. They just went eight and oh in ICC play. And look, if Georgia Bama turns out to be this lopsided game where Georgia reminds us why it's the two time defending national champs, and this is just a, a game in which th- this truly does feel like, all right, Georgia has totally taken over the college football world. And there's really no doubt after two in a row against Bama, dating back, obviously, the the 2021 national championship to me, even if that happens on Saturday, the play that Jalen Milrow and Isaiah bond made will be talked about forever. That's just the way that the iron bowl works. Kick six is still talked about forever, even though Auburn didn't win a national championship, but that game felt (laughs) more important than the national championship that year. I don't know. Depending on who you ask. Yeah. There's a case to be made for that. Prior Jordan hair. One of those iconic plays. It, it just is. This play, if Bama plays for a national championship, how about that? It will be, in my opinion, one of the defining plays of the Saban era. It truly will be. That sounds like I'm giving him so much credit for that. But to me, the quarterback situation, the way that this has all played out, the faith that they have put in Jalen Milrow, the trust that Tommy Reese has developed in him to build a game plan around his skill set. All those different things when, you know, the USF thing happened and the benching, non-benching, whatever you want to call it, the Jalen Milrow is on the sidelines and he's going to have to figure this out if he's going to be the quarterback of this team and if Alabama's going to go to the places that it wants to go. All of those things had to happen for this group to be in this spot at 11-1 with a chance, just with a chance. The fact that it happened against Hugh Freeze, who was the last guy to beat Saban in consecutive years, and at Jordan-Hare, where Saban has struggled more than any place during his time at Alabama, more than Death Valley, obviously, the, you know, has, hasn't lost to Georgia or anything like that since since year one. So this is, this is Saban's house of horrors. It is. And you could see the look on his face afterwards. This just felt so monumental in every single way. And even if Bama does lose to Georgia, are, are we really going to sit there and pretend like, yeah, this team just, just over the hill? I don't know. We'll wait and see the, the Milrow NFL draft decision, kind of see which guys are going to be coming back for this team and, and what they do in the portal. All those different things will shape our perception and, and the way that this season finishes. If they looked way overmatched against Georgia, of course, we're going to come to those conclusions. We will. But man, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't. So the question now is going to become, does Bama go into the SEC championship playing with house money? It should. It should. You should feel like you're on a free roll at this point. You really should. I know Kirby got over the Saban hump. Georgia runs this sport 29 in a row. Longest SEC winning streak ever. Ever. And I should say longest winning streak by an SEC team, not longest SEC winning streak. But you know what I'm saying. Trying to three-peat for the first time since the great Ed Witseth. You get it. But what's going to make this Bama team die? That's what I keep wondering about. What is going to make this team die and eventually give up? Because we've seen championship teams that have that have lost a regular season game in which we think we have the Bama flaws figured out. I think the 2021 Bama team is a good example of feeling like we know the flaws and the limitations and what could be the undoing. 
many would say it was Bill O'Brien. Many would say it was the offensive line, all the penalties, whatever you want to say. A team that had weaknesses. And I guess we saw that play out, but it took until the fourth quarter of a national championship. But what's what are going to be the things that ends this Alabama season? Maybe the run defense, which was mostly really bad on Saturday. Worst run defense performance of the season. Worst run defense performance since last year's Iron Bowl. Maybe it's going to be the snap issues. Maybe there's going to be a time in which Jalen Milrow can't do that. And that happens on fourth down. And instead of, you know, taking that 18 yard loss with a chance to be able to, you know, to, to redeem it a play or two later, that's not there. And that's what Bama has been able to do. I mean, go back to second and 26, the play that happened right before the sack that Tua takes Tua was saying it. What did he say as recently as two weeks ago? That was the the maddest that Saban had ever been at him for taking that sack in that spot in the national championship. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying Bama's winning a title because of what happened and the way that this played out. If that does happen, though, that play, fourth and 31, Milro to Bond, Isaiah Bond, that play is at the start of the championship DVD. It is. We're going to be talking about that one for a long time. And sorry, Auburn fans. I know you don't want to hear it. You still got plenty of great plays that we're going to be talking about for a long time. It's not like the kick six. We're, we're just past now the 10-year mark, and we're never going to talk about that again. Trust me. Auburn fans, if ever you feel bad about the way that this one played out, just watch kick six. Watch prayer of Jordan Hare. Just, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. That I wanted to tell that to the Auburn fans who were in tears watching that play out. Not hating on people for crying. Nothing wrong with a good, healthy cry. Everybody does it. Not everybody does it. I take that back. A lot of people do it. Life will be okay. Life will be okay. Life is okay for Bama as it heads into this, this SEC championship, a matchup that has set up in ways that, man, um, I am just so excited for. And we'll get to some of the playoff ramifications in a bit here when we talk about Georgia. Let's first talk about the unranked SEC team who, you know, just casually knocked off a top 10 team on the road. Kentucky, Louisville, what a roller coaster day for Kentucky. If there's been a crazier day in the history of Kentucky football, I don't know what it is. You go from being down in this game, 17 to 7, middle of the third quarter. Louisville looks like it's about to run away with it. It's the largest crowd ever for a Louisville home game. Maybe the biggest game in Louisville football history. Jack Harlow is flipping the double birds to the UK fans. Bad vibes all around. And then just like that, bang, Kentucky does something that I did not think they had in them. Point blank. I don't even know if Stoops thought his team had that in them. The offense just caught fire. 31 points in the final 21 minutes of this game. Outside of the horrendous Devin Leary pick to get Louisville right back in. Just a costly turnover in that spot in which you're wondering, oh man, this is why Kentucky can't have nice things. This, This offensive explosion was so out of nowhere. And my doppelganger, Liam Cohen, he was in his bag. Maybe it was the fact that he was on the sideline. Whatever the case, he was dialing up some looks, and Kentucky was feeling it. What a day for Ray Davis. Not the second half of the season that he was hoping for. He wanted more volume. Stoops has seemed kind of frustrated with with him and maybe the lack of explosiveness. But whatever. I to score not one, but two fourth quarter touchdowns in that game, including the game winner. That's why you call that guy. Think of how big Kentucky's transfers have been in playing a part in beating Louisville. I'm pretty sure Will Levis, 
I, I didn't have a live look of him during this this game on Saturday, he was probably just sitting there from, you know, some apartment in Nashville, just with L's down the entire time. I'm assuming. Okay. That was probably the entire Kentucky fan base. This game was the vision that Kentucky fans had for this team. Barry and Brown punt return for uh, was uh, no, not punt return kick return for six beautiful throw into a tight window for Dane key, a play that I thought we were going to see so much more of between Devin Leary and Dane key. And we, we have not. You saw an, imp- an improved big blue wall opening up holes for Davis down the stretch. Leary making more of those big-time throws. Deion Walker, J.J. Weaver, those guys were everywhere on the defensive side of the ball. I would have been better off predicting this game based on my preseason crystal ball than I, than I would have been um, using the previous 11 games to try and figure out how this was going to go. Dead wrong. Apologies to Kentucky. Hand up. I also will say I had no reason whatsoever to believe that the win streak against Louisville would continue, but boy, did it. Uh, What a depressing game for Louisville in so many ways. Kentucky had not beat an AP top 10 team on the road since when? You already know. Come on. Jimmy Carter administration, of course. Bittersweet in some ways because you wonder why it took this type of situation to bring out the best in Kentucky easily, easily the best this team has looked was in that final 20 minutes. Again, outside of the one Devin Leary interception. If Jack Harlow is at every Kentucky game, just throwing up the double birds is Kentucky playing in Atlanta next week. I don't know. Some are asking probably not, but this could have been a nine and three team. If it had played like that all year, I think that's at least fair. Bama and Georgia were on the schedule, so that was always going to limit this team's upside. This was never going to be a division title winning team, in my opinion. But I, I, I was really impressed because I don't think Louisville is a massive fraud. I, I really don't. That D-line held, held Davis in check most of the game. He really did not get going until the fourth quarter. And Kentucky only finished this game with 289 yards of offense. This wasn't like... And they benefited from 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 some short fields, obviously. But this wasn't like a game where Kentucky was moving the ball up and down the entire time. I and mean, they, they were really held in check for a good chunk of this one. How about Joey Gatewood out there scoring touchdowns for Louisville as a tight end? <laughs> How is that guy still in college? Oh, man. Everybody has eligibility forever. They shared on the broadcast that when Liam got to Kentucky – he told Gatewood that he should be a tight end, not a quarterback. Probably a little bit harsh. I don't know how that was received by Gatewood at the time, but great advice. He was right. Uh, they apparently had a laugh about it during the week. But look, um, despite all the mojo that Louisville had going into this one, I didn't think that they had a playoff path with all the things that were working ahead of them. But they were still a one-loss team playing in probably their biggest game in program history, I, I I don't know, in some time at least, and especially with what Kentucky had done, there were so many things that suggested this was going to be a one of those days in which Louisville has this come up moment and it's a changing of the guard with Jeff Brom and it's no longer Scott Satterfield just getting dominated by Stoops year after year. But what a win for Stoops to continue his dominance in this. Stoops just owns Louisville. I, I might, for future previews of that game, just have to say that and move on. 
I don't know if there's any more insight that I should provide other than, oh yeah, Stoops owns Louisville. On to the next game. All right. Um, and by the way, let me say one more thing on the Stoops to A&M thing. Let me just, while we're talking about Kentucky, let me say one more thing here. I don't think this was quite on the level of Greg Schiano, Tennessee. I don't. It would have been a weird hire. It would have been a weird hire had it actually gone through and these these parties been able to cross the goal line. But I like I came back to the recruiting stuff. Stoops has only signed two high school recruits from the state of Texas during his entire 11 years at Kentucky. I mean, that is a job in which you think, okay, you might be able to recruit nationally. I think that's still not the easiest job in the world to recruit nationally to come to College Station, Texas. I'm not hating on College Station, Texas. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying there are certain places that can recruit nationally better than others. Money plays a part in that. I get it. Stoops would have had a ton of help in that regard. And that was probably the intrigue on his side. The pony up comments that did not age particularly well post-Georgia after you lose five games like that. Um, I, I still, I get it from Stoops' side and, and where that, that intrigue was. I think there was legitimate intrigue to not have to do whatever you can to finally get into our facility to have to sit there after getting smashed and say, hey, you want better players? Let's pony up. I'm not hating on Kentucky fans at all for, for doing that. I, I'm just saying the intrigue. There's a reason why college football coaches are not at the same job for 20 years. There's just not. And if I'm recruiting negatively against Stoops, if I'm in a recruiting battle with somebody with Kentucky, I'm pointing to that Stoops tweet, and I'm pointing to the part where he said right now, this was not the fit for him to go to Texas A&M. And I'm saying it's only a matter of time. I now have changed my tune a bit. And I do think there is a world in which Stoops could leave for Kentucky. And it didn't happen with Florida. It didn't happen with Florida State a few years ago. I still go back to Florida State after I said, I think I said on the Chuck Oliver show, that, that Stoops had been offered the Florida State job. And I get a call from Florida State saying, no, he was actually never offered the job. This was only going to Mike Norvell. All right, sure. Um. But this is one of those things in which, look, I, I, I think that there were understandable reactions from both parties on why this played out the way that it did. And the resistance from AM fans are rooted in the fact that Stoops has had nothing but three lost seasons at Kentucky, a place where a three loss season is different than it is in college. You know, in College Station, okay, it's not the same thing. So I'm, I'm not going to compare apples to oranges. I've done the Jimbo Stoops side by side. What Stoops has done at Kentucky compared to what Jimbo was doing at A&M. The fact that Stoops has been basically walking in step with Jimbo, maybe even better, to me shows you that this guy is a really good coach. I still think he's a really good coach, despite the fact that his approval rating has taken a hit this year. But if A&M fans think you're too good for Mark Stoops. I push back on that. You could think it's it, it would have been a weird fit, but to think you're too good for Mark Stoops, I do have a problem with that. You don't get to say that when you have not been to a conference championship game in the 21st century. Yes, you're paying all of that money. Yes, you're paying more than $100 million to be able to make this move. And I fully get it. And if AM fans were underwhelmed at the thought of bringing on Mark Stoops was, you know, part of the conversation, if that's why the reaction was so strong amongst fans, I, I, I understand it from that standpoint. 
But I don't know if there's anybody that's truly going to satisfy what they are looking for, if that's going to be the reaction. So again, strange. I don't think they'll make a 30 for 30 in the three hours of Mark Stoops. They would have to do a minute by minute thing. I would watch it. I don't think they're going to make it though. Um, look, I'll never forget the Stoops era at a It was a memorable time. I might even make a fake plaque to commemorate it. Georgia, Georgia Tech. Georgia wasn't in need of style points, and they didn't really get any on Saturday night. All it had to do, though, was just beat Georgia Tech. Had to do so without the likes of Brock Bowers, Ladd McConkie, Rawa Thomas, all of whom they would like to be able to have in the ICC championship. We do not take Kirby Smart injury reports as gospel. So just wait and see who's out on the field. That's what Seth Emerson and these beat reporters and Ratty, that's what these guys seem to do all the time. Just wait and see who's on the field and wait and see how that plays out. Don't take Kirby's word for it. Uh, credit Tech for not fading, even though I didn't really think Georgia Tech had much of a chance to stop the run. That Georgia offensive line was dominant in that game. I never thought this game was in doubt because of that. I love seeing a healthy Kendall Milton. Man, it's great to see what that guy can do with, with I would say, close to 100% health at this stage of the season. He is a dangerous weapon if he's going to be able to take advantage of Georgia's offensive line like that. Speaking of dangerous weapons, Dylan Bell, there, there needs to be ways to manufacture that guy touches, even if they do get those pass catchers back. He's just too good. He's just too good. He's awesome, man. Like, I... I think that getting him lined up all over the formation is just another little wrinkle that you can do with this team. Um, and he looks like he's really growing with his confidence in this offense. And that's fun to watch. I think if you are looking at this game from the outside, if you're watching this game from the perspective of a Texas fan or a, a PAC 12 fan or, or something like that, you could say, mm, yeah, Georgia had moments of weaknesses Probably not ideal that this team was so young at the inside linebacker spots. We're not selling CJ Allen stock. We're not doing that. So don't get it twisted. If Georgia defends the run like it did against Tech and Auburn, as Javon Bullard said in the postgame, this team won't three-peat. And someone like Michigan or Oregon will be a brutal matchup. Maybe even Alabama could be a brutal matchup if that's the case. I don't think it's a fair thing to assume that Georgia will defend the run like that against those teams. And maybe I'll get cold taked on that, but I don't think that's a fair thing to assume. I outlined all the reasons why this was a really tricky spot for Kirby Smart against a tech team that was very much overwhelmed by the Georgia offensive line. But still, I, I think that there are plenty of elements that suggested this game was going to stay somewhat interesting. And what we know about Georgia having already clinched an SEC championship berth, and you're already pretty banged up at some key spots, and you're just trying to make it out healthy. You don't want to empty the bag with all the plays. Now, look, I'm the guy defending Bobo saying that they want to empty the bag with all the plays. Let's look at the positive for Georgia. Let's do that. 12-0, three consecutive 12-0 regular seasons. <laughs> it's insane. It, it really is. 29 straight wins, again, an SEC record. You still have everything on the table against Bama. And I know everybody else on the outside is going to be talking about the other elephant in the room, pun intended. Can Georgia make the playoff with a loss to Alabama? I'm going to say those odds aren't great. I'm going to say they're not great. Why? It's not really an indictment 
of Georgia. It's not really even an indictment of Georgia's resume, if we're being 100% honest. 12-1 Bama, who beats Georgia, neutral site game, they would have a leg up. Somewhere, Bama fans listen to this are saying, Atlanta's not a neutral site, Georgia's... Yeah, I, I get it, okay? So let's just assume that a Bama team that's 12-1 and one that beats Georgia is getting it ahead of Georgia. That's what we're talking about. Teams that would be given a playoff spot ahead of Georgia. The winner of Washington, Oregon is getting it. I think that's the case. And I've poked holes in the Oregon resume. And I think it's vastly overrated. If I'm a Texas or Bama fan, I'm kind of livid that Oregon continues to get the benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that they looked awesome. Lock of the week streak is finally over. Oregon put me in a locker, gave me a swirly, whatever you want to call it. They looked awesome against Oregon State. Tip of the cap to them. Their most impressive game of the season, bar none. And if they beat Washington, they will be in as the top-ranked one-loss team throughout this entire process. So I think that will hold true. But let's say those spots, the Pac-12 champion and a 12-1 and Bama who beats Georgia. Let's say those two spots are getting in no matter what. Georgia would probably need two of these three things happening to make the field as a one-loss team. You would need Florida State losing to Louisville in the ACC championship. Michigan losing to Iowa in the Big Ten championship. Or Texas losing to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 championship. You need two of those three things to happen. Is that possible? Eh, sure. I consider Michigan beating Iowa about as close to a lock as there can possibly be. Can you imagine if Brian Ferentz is up there on the podium of Big Ten championship hoisting that trophy? No, you can't. Of course you can't. Um, so in that scenario, the realistic path for Georgia to get in as a one-loss team, again, we're just speaking in terms of the contingency plans, just in case all hell breaks loose, or just in case Bama does continue this run. Okay, we're, we're just mapping out scenarios here. We're trying to get ahead of this stuff. The realistic path is two of those three things happening. There's still a chance that this could happen as well. Texas wins and Bama wins a thriller against Georgia. The selection committee says, we know that Texas has the head-to-head against Bama, but we're going to put in Bama and Georgia plus the Pac-12 winner and likely Michigan. That scenario, in my opinion, is only on the table if Florida State loses. Florida State losing is such a key development. And Georgia fans who are probably rooting for Florida on Saturday night, just in case, just in case, I'm not saying it was they're sitting there rocking blue and orange, not saying anything like that. But, you know, just flipping over being like, oh, hey, is Billy not going to get cute in the fourth quarter here? Is Florida not going to find a way to have stupid penalties, cost themselves a chance at a very winnable game against the top 10 team? I'm saying that that would be the best way for this path for Georgia as a one-loss team to open up. Obviously, Georgia fans are not thinking about the worst-case scenarios. They're thinking about a world in which they continue this run, they continue this win streak, they beat Alabama, and that one seed is locked up. That's all they're thinking about, okay? Georgia is the last team that I worry about when it comes to dialing in. And maybe it even helps this team to feel like it's not a spot that's clinched. It's different than the last two years. I think the last two years, Georgia's spot in the playoff has been clinched. It definitely was after getting waxed by Bama two years ago, because obviously Georgia was still in the playoff. 
Fans might be asking those questions. Players won't. Coaches won't. Kirby's not going to be talking about that unless Georgia loses to Bama, and then he's got to go on national TV on Sunday morning before the selection show and explain his case. That's that's how this is going to work. But for now, Georgia 12-0, and feeling really good. As good as, as Georgia should feel, I think, in this spot, given the injuries, given how top-heavy it looks like the field is going to be this year. Florida State, Florida. Oh, boy. Um, Florida losing five in a row to miss out on bowl eligibility. You don't really have to look far to answer the question, why? Why did this team that it looked like it had turned the corner against South Carolina have this season, have this year that just totally was derailed? I went from talking about Florida controlling its own path in the East in that game against Georgia to missing a bowl game. These things don't happen. They're not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to be sitting here at the end of year two looking that undisciplined. What do I mean by undisciplined? Florida had a spinning penalty. Let that sink in. Florida had a spitting penalty. Do you know how hard it is to get penalized for spitting? Do you know how unbelievably dumb you have to be to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to fire away. I don't care that there's an official within arm's reach for an official to be that close in that moment for it to not register. Hmm, you know, I should, maybe I shouldn't spit in this guy's face. And I know in, in the heat of passion, look, things happen. Heat of battle. I shouldn't say the heat of passion. That's a different thing. We don't have to talk about that today to get penalized in that spot for that play. That just tells you everything you need to know. Or if that doesn't, you're like, yeah, hey, you know what guys losing their cool happens. People, in this game, punch people wearing helmets just because their emotions get the best of them. Okay, whatever. Florida had two players that should have been called for targeting on a QB sneak that was short on third and 14. A sliding quarterback on third and 14, well short of the line to gain, and not one but two Florida players went straight to the noggin. Not on purpose. I realize that. But still, that play tells you everything about the year that's been for Florida. I don't know how Tate Rodemaker came back into the game. I don't know how Jackson Dart came back into that game either. Some very quick concussion tests are going on that I'm sure we're going to get a look from, from people behind the scenes to be like, hmm, what are you guys doing again? Uh, that, was, that was surprising, but whatever. I don't need to go off about that. Florida coming out to a 12 and 0 lead that it could not hold at home uh, to me that that is so frustrating on so many levels when it looks like Florida State's offense was just going backwards i mean they literally were on that safety a, a safety in which Rodemaker gets tackled by four different florida players florida state didn't have a play in florida territory until 2 minutes left in the first half and florida lost that game they lost that game, not going for it on fourth and one, failing to protect Max Brown, a backup quarterback, settling for long field goals. Awful game for Billy Napier in every way. I feel like I've defended that guy more times than not. He is becoming so tough to defend. Even Florida fans, I, I, I think, are saying to themselves, how is this bad? And, and I get it. Look, injuries didn't help. Trevor Etienne goes down. Montreal Johnson was still darn good for most of this game. Florida got away from the run a bit down the stretch. 
you lose a few defenders as well. But you start asking Max Brown to throw the ball. And Herbie said on the broadcast, you know, you don't want him in obvious passing situations. I get it. He's a young dual threat quarterback. He's not really built for a third and 12. I talked about that with Graham Mertz. And I also get it. It's his first career start. That's still a problem if you're saying that late in a game like this. And there's just no rhythm whatsoever in the passing game. No identity. How does Ricky Pearsall not get a first half touch? How do you, as an offensive play caller, Billy Napier, not call a pop pass for that guy after what he did last week against Mizzou on a running play? How at some point do you not say, you know, Ricky hasn't touched the ball. Our best player hasn't touched the ball. This is why you hire an offensive play caller. I like, sorry, I'm, I'm a, I'm a broken record. You've heard me say this. Florida fans, you know it. You saw this play out. This, this is why you cannot be the head coach calling plays in that spot. You don't have the awareness. You have had two years now. Okay? You have had two years. In the last game of your second season, you had your best player not getting a touch for the entire first half. Maybe that's the good news for Florida fans, though. Maybe, that, maybe that's the silver lining that Billy finally saw that his plan is not working. If Florida wins this game 21-17, to 17, it's a Toby Keith game for, for Billy. Look, even though it's against a backup quarterback, Billy is convinced that his offense is working. He doubles down by not hiring an offensive play caller. If he does not bring in someone, he is digging his own grave. He just is. He has to take a CEO role because his team has so many issues, so many issues that come back to the head coach. And meanwhile... All you got to do is look across the sideline and see a team that does not panic. A team that is so much better coached. Florida State is. Way better coached. Trey Benson is kind of the perfect embodiment of Florida State this year. So patient with his runs. Always looking for that opportunity. Never freaking out or just bouncing it out to the sideline because there's nothing there. or Something like that. Giving up on the play. That's kind of Florida State this year. It, it just kind of is. They have not won 18 games in a row by accident. And as much as I love Jordan Travis, one of my favorite players in all of college football, he really was this year. It's not just him. It's not. It's really not. It's having a game record like Jared Verse who can take over. It's having a coach who trusts a quarterback and develops him and lets him rip it downfield, even when there's nothing doing in the first half. It's having discipline to not give yards away. Mark Long had this stat who writes for the AP and covers all things Florida. Florida had 50 penalty yards in the fourth quarter. That was more total than their total yards of offense in the entire second half. How? How? Don't don't just say that's the injuries. It's not. Florida bookended the season with wildly undisciplined performances by better coach teams. Kyle Whittingham, Mike Norvell, better coaches than Billy Napier. No question. Billy Napier failed this year. He failed. He really did. I don't know what his self-eval is going to be for his his job performance. I don't know what that's going to look like if he sits down with an end-of-year meeting with Scott Strickland and they hash out what worked, what didn't work. He failed. He failed. He gets an F. He will now be on these, the, the, every hot seat list, this entire long offseason of the sport, where an eight-month offseason can shape perception so much. And you have just made things more difficult for yourself on the recruiting trail because everybody's going to want to ask, what kind of faith do you have? 
What kind of faith do you have from your ED? What kind of faith do you have from the donors? How are you going to tell us that you are going to be here for the long haul and that we're not going to be scrambling at the last minute to try and find a place because you got fired in November? And you're going to have maybe the most difficult schedule in all of college football. If it sounds like I'm frustrated, it's because I am. I'm frustrated because there are pieces there for this team to have taken that next step, to have had that eight and four season, to have not shot themselves in the foot. And I know like there's youth and, and mistakes sometimes come with youth, especially when you are so youth dependent. I get that, but it ain't all youth. So much of this is coaching. So much of this is, is having players who are undisciplined or are not prepared for that spotlight, a spotlight that scrutinizes you in a way that few programs do. And you know what? As it should. As it should. Okay? I think that this, this entire Billy conversation is going to feel very one-sided throughout this entire offseason. We'll have a lot more thoughts on that and where he goes from here. I've already mapped out with Matt Hayes kind of what I would like to see from an offensive coordinator hire, all those things. We'll have more conversations about that. Florida State, one last note on them. I couldn't believe that Herbie doubled down on game day. I like Herbie. I like Herbie. I think what he does, his travel schedule, all of it. There's a reason that guy is as good as there is in the business probably. I don't think Herbie understands the playoff. Despite the fact that he is on those Tuesday ranking shows every single week. He says at least one thing on those ranking shows or on college game day that makes me think, has he just not been paying attention to the playoff for the last decade? He said on college game day that, quote, it's not so simple for Florida State to make the playoff as a 13-0 team. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And Tate Rodemaker might not be Cardell Jones. That's fine. But Herbie telling us at the end of that game on Saturday night, a game in which he's on the call for with Fowler, him telling us, not to judge Florida State based on the fact that it was only a nine-point win at the Swamp. Even though, like, look, we knew the factors that were working against Florida State. He's like, don't, don't judge Florida State for that. Herbie's just talking about himself. I think he's trying to talk himself into that. It may, hopefully, he has done a 180, and we're not going to have a third consecutive week in which Herbie is telling us that a 13-0 Florida State team, just because of the change of quarterback, might not deserve a shot at the college football playoff. Florida State will absolutely deserve a shot at the college football playoff if it is 13-0. Obviously, you got to beat Louisville to get there. Maybe Louisville is going to be a bit pissed off. Texas A&M, LSU. A slow start and a very Jaden Daniels-like finish to this game. He gets his four touchdowns. That is 50 total touchdowns on the season pre-Heisman without an SEC championship game. Unreal. Just unbelievable. 12th power five player ever to have 50 touchdowns pre-Heisman. He's going to New York. There's no doubt about that. He's top two at the very least. He he will be. There are going to be a lot of eyes in the Pac-12 championship, understandably so. There will be Heisman voters who cast their ballots based on whether Bo Nix looks the part and gets the revenge against Washington. If he does that, there are people who will say, Bo Nix, Heisman winner, Simple as that. That's see, that's that Kirby is where you can say simple as that. There will be people that do that. There will be. I will not submit my ballot until late in the day on Sunday. I think I need to do that every year. It allows me to kind of not be too reactionary to the, the Saturday conference championship games. I can take everything into consideration. I found myself last year mapping out scenarios beforehand. Okay, if this happens and this happens, how will I feel about this? 
and you really don't know until you watch this stuff play out. But I will, I will, I'm telling you the listeners two years after I went on a diatribe about Heisman voters and the busted process. And now that I, I get to be a part of this and I, I truly take that seriously. And I've watched even more football this year than I have in any other time in my life. Um, I, I promise you, I will not be making that decision until Sunday night, but yeah, uh, Jaden Daniels, his Heisman conversation, uh, this game, I actually thought there were opportunities for LSU to pad the stats if they wanted to, but because AM came out as well as it did with Jalen Henderson, who, again, I thought for the most part played really, really well in, in this spot with the limitations of AM. they didn't even have Evan Stewart out there and that guy, that guy played his tail off. I hope he gets an opportunity. I think he's allowed to be able to transfer with this 30-day window, even though he's already transferred from Fresno State to AM, but with the coaching change, I think and hope he gets an opportunity somewhere to be able to run an offense. He's fun to watch. But the perspective of this game, which probably for people like me was just get Jaden Daniels as many touchdowns as humanly possible, it definitely shifted to just go win a football game. Just don't lose to this AM team with an interim coach. Elijah Robinson, also someone that needs to get an opportunity, needs to get an opportunity somewhere. This was different for LSU than the Florida or the Georgia State game. To nobody's surprise, though, Jaden Daniels found a way. Imagine that. The touchdowns to Brian Thomas and Malik Neighbors. I've run out of ways to describe this. And if you've been listening to this show, you know that I haven't been saying week after week that this is 2019 all over again. I hold that year and that LSU team in such high regard that I think it's disrespectful to use that to default to that in spots. But I will say I'm amazed how similar it feels at times. It, it Just on the offensive side of the ball, not talking about the LSU defense, but on the offensive side of the ball, you have a quarterback that's just in total control. He doesn't fear getting hit. That's a big part of what makes this offense go. He lets plays develop. He dares defensive backs to try and spend that time covering those guys, knowing they're not going to be able to do that for five, six seconds. They're just not. He will throw into tight windows. He can throw in the traditional, you know, look, he's going to sit in the pocket and he's got look off the safety. He's going to come back over the top. Brian Thomas on the right sideline. Like he'll do that. He'll throw off platform, whatever. It just doesn't really matter. He's just going to find a way. And I'll say this too. I know that Marvin Harrison Jr. is unreal. He is unfreaking believable. I want him on the Bears so badly, so badly. I, I want him, I think, as much for my team as any non-quarterback in the last 10 to 15 years. And look, I, I've been covering this sport now for for, for a while, and I've, <laughs> I've had a lot of guys that I've thought to myself, man, if they could just get this guy, if they could just get that guy. Marvin Harrison is becoming number one on that list for me. The plays that he makes, he is already that good. And I watched that that Ohio state Michigan game in awe of the things that he is doing. It's incredible. It, it really is. But if we're being honest, Blake neighbors has had the better year. He has had the better year. He hit the century mark in nine of 12 games. He hasn't been held under 120 receiving yards since mid October among sec teams. Auburn is the only team that held him below the century mark. It's insane. It's truly insane. And as it relates to the Blitnikoff, to me, I, I think neighbors has to be the guy, even though we're not talking like we're, if we're talking about who is the better pro prospect, I, I get all of those things. And I get that that Harrison is playing a different system and and 
ironically enough, it's LSU that has the more favorable surroundings at receiver than Ohio State. The better receiver room which was not something that I expected coming into the season. I hope we get one more game of this LSU offense because it's so fun. It's very, very likely that it will not be a New Year's Six Bowl. Ole Miss is, is kind of blocking that path from LSU. Let's talk about Ole Miss. A game that feels like it was a month ago. The Egg Bowl on Thursday night. I really wanted three to nothing to hold. It would have been the lowest scoring Egg Bowl ever. Sadly, we did not get it. We did get Ole Miss winning ugly, which is something I think Lane has been able to do a little bit more this year. Jackson Dart, not sure. Um, I, I would have loved to have known, and I know he, was, he had TikTok afterwards that was going viral. I think that was Ali G, an Ali G filter. I don't know. I'm not on top of it. But uh, I would love to know how many cobwebs he was shaking out after taking that hit. Um, it almost woke him up, though, in a weird way. As much as it frustrates me that he takes some of those hits, and I, I would be very frustrated if I were Lane with how little he protects himself as a runner. He does provide significant value by playing fearlessly. I, I will give him that. There's no question about it. Think about this, though. Ole Miss gets to 10 regular season wins for the second time in three years. Ole Miss has had two 10-win regular seasons in program history. Both belong to Lane Kiffin. Incredibly impressive. Incredibly impressive. And I know we talk all the time about Lane not being able to beat the teams that actually end up being quality teams at season's end. I know we talk about that. By the way, though, he gets to end the streak because LSU is 9-3. So for the first time in 12 years... Lane Kiffin can say that he beat a power five team who went on to win nine regular season games. I was bracing for a six win Ole Miss season. Dead wrong. I think I was just underestimating this team in every area. I really was. E even Judkins, who got off to that slow start, he still ends up hitting 15 rushing touchdowns. They said on the broadcast, <laughs> the only other player in SEC history to have two seasons with 15 rushing yards to start off his career, Herschel. That's it. Pretty good company that he continues to be in. Um, and this Ole Miss team that, look, if you're playing Alabama, Georgia, and LSU in one season, 10-2 and two is the best you can hope for. It, it really is. And, and I think that Lane did a nice job of maximizing this team. You can go back to the second half and say, what if, what if, what if. But still, to get to 10-2, and two, wildly impressive. If Ole Miss doesn't get to a New Year's Six Bowl, it would be getting screwed. A 10-2 team from the SEC getting left out of a New Year's Six Bowl does not make sense, especially when that team had to play, again, at Bama, at Georgia, home against LSU. And Penn State being ranked ahead of Ole Miss is because it beat Iowa at home. Really dumb. And, um, and, and the other part of it, too, Tulane blocking out Ole Miss or having that group of five spot Potentially, if they're able to win the AAC championship, they're able to beat UTSA in the regular season finale. If Tulane was the team that blocked Ole Miss out of a New Year's Six Bowl when Tulane lost to Ole Miss, uh, that would be frustrating. And I know they didn't have Michael Pratt. That game was closer than what the final score indicated. It would still be super frustrating for Ole Miss because I do think New Year's Six Bowls matter and they will matter probably. We will look back on them in a different way once we get to the 12-team playoff era. It's a good thing that we're not having this debate about the 12-team playoff and Ole Miss potentially getting in. The other good news, Louisville lost. That, that was huge. If Louisville loses the ACC championship, I believe 
Ole Miss will get into a New Year's Six Bowl. A lot of things kind of factor into that. There's, you know, this all comes down to, to those rankings and whatnot. And I get that. Um, those final playoff rankings. And again, a group of five team, the highest group of five conference champ is going to get into the, to the New Year's Six. Um, but I think if Louisville loses in the ACC championship, Ole Miss gets in. So Ole Miss was the second biggest beneficiary from Kentucky pulling off that upset. Uh, by the way, the, the savage post-game hype video by Ole Miss. Can't believe they used the Will Rogers screenshot. If you don't know, look it up. If you know, you know. Will Rogers transferring. Let's talk about that. Um, Mark Zenitz was the one who had this, this first, and Rogers confirmed that. A lot of buzz about a potential move to Kentucky. Not sure that I see the scheme fit there, but it would continue Rogers' chances of, of trying to become the SEC's all-time leading passer to try and pass up Aaron Murray, something that looked like it was inevitable in the beginning of the season, and then he gets hurt. The offense does not do the things that we thought it could, and suddenly he is still uh, looking up at good friend Aaron Murray. Not saying that he's going to transfer within the SEC just to be able to do that, but who knows? Maybe it breaks the tire or something like that. He is such a, a weird portal target because of the offense that he played in for three years with Leach and the struggles, obviously, with the, the transition to Kevin Barbe. Not exactly a mobile threat. Mississippi State's only touchdown in the Egg Bowl was a Will Rogers rushing touchdown. First time he's done that in three years. I think there's a world in which Rogers could go to Southern Miss or something, but they're shuffling their staff right now. I don't know. Maybe he could do something like that, put up a ton of yards, have a great final year in college. There's also a world in which maybe he goes to a power five program. He gets guys to buy in. He plays for like a nine and three team or something that's in a conference title hunt. We're like, Hey, how about this year for Will Rogers? That could definitely happen too. But I think that guy deserves to be celebrated in a variety of ways by Mississippi state fans. And I think he will be, he's going to be all over that record book for a long time, a really long time as the only leech quarterback there, because obviously KJ Castello peaked in week one. I was going to have KJ on the show and just ask him questions about the 2020 opener against LSU. <laughs> that would have been a fun interview. Uh, he's like, we're going to talk about anything else. Nope. Just want to talk about LSU. Just want to talk about that game. Uh, but as for Rogers, I, I can't help but wonder what his year would have looked like at Mississippi state. If he had a less drastic offensive change, hindsight's 2020, they wanted to play complimentary football. Zach Arnett wanted to play complimentary football at least. And that offense did not compliment anyone or anything. And now Rodgers is looking for a new home. Clemson, South Carolina. The worst possible way for South Carolina to start this game was what happened. Swing pass, second play from scrimmage, dropped, ruled a fumble. South Carolina players didn't really seem to know that it was ruled a fumble. And Clemson's taking it back the other way. I love how defensive players... They can watch a pass that a quarterback throws behind the line of scrimmage, but it's on some sort of deep drop. It's on like a screen pass or something. And it's very obviously a forward pass and the running back drops it or something. And then the defender picks it up and runs away with it. I'm like, can we, can we stop doing this? You guys know it's a forward pass. And if you don't, and you think that every pass behind the line of scrimmage is a backwards pass, then I don't know. There's there's no solution for that. But this was an instance in which, yeah, it was good for Clemson that it it, it thought the play was alive because it very much was. Um, 
I, I thought that was a really tough early development. Obviously, the game wasn't decided by that, but Clemson on its heels would have been a much better site for South Carolina. They have kind of seemed like a team that has panicked in those tight spots, especially on the road. Feels like we've seen some questionable decisions from Cade Klubnik in crunch time moments, and we really didn't get that because they were able to hold on to that two-score lead. We instead got an all-too-familiar occurrence, Spencer Rattler fighting for his life, trying to make a play and not really being able to find much space. And the improved Clemson defense shut him down. Clemson deserved to win that game. There was no Williams-Brice magic. There will be no South Carolina bowl game. I would assume Spencer Rattler is off to the NFL. I think it was Brad Crawford who had that. Uh, yeah, it was Brad. Brad had the stat that Rattler was sacked once every 10.9 pass attempts during his two seasons at South Carolina. Started every game in two seasons at South Carolina, by the way. I think he's especially grateful for South Carolina that they gave him the chance to write a new chapter in his story. I think he had other Power 5 suitors. I don't know that all of them would have been fully on board for everything that came with it, with the criticism, with when he gets off to a start like he did in those first two months, the, the first two months that he had last season. And there are a lot of places that would have said, let's bail. And South Carolina didn't bail on that guy. And he didn't bail on South Carolina. So anybody that's writing that to me, that they're not looking at this situation with clear eyes. They're probably looking at this after having just watched QB one or something like that. I, I think that it's still okay to say that South Carolina let him down in some ways. The fact that they just could not get better help up front is a bummer. It really is. Cause that guy, if he had had an offensive line, that was just average, just average. I think he could have done even bigger and better things because so much of what we criticized him for the lazy mechanics, the leadership, that was just not an issue by the end of this season. And really, I, I think even at the start of this season, I, I wasn't finding myself worried about that with him. And he has checked a lot of those boxes. I think he's helped himself to the point where I, I would take that guy as a mid-round NFL draft pick. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think he's going to be one of the first five quarterbacks off the board. I, I do think that there is a market for him. And yeah, he'll be in a spot very likely where he's going to have to hold a clipboard and you know, you just never know kind of the mindset, how he's going to embrace that opportunity. But does that guy have skills that translate to the NFL? Yes. I don't think he's quite, he's maybe going to be compared to a Felipe Franks. And to me, that's not fair. That's, I, I don't think that's fair just because I think Rattler was a more defined player by the end of his career. And I give him more credit and the things that he learned with Dow Loggins, I think that will be more valuable. Um, but I, I, I like the player that he became. I do. I, I really do. And it's kind of a bummer that this season ended up being just a dud, a five and seven year. It's a bummer that Xavier Leggett had the second best season ever for a Gamecock receiver, second to Ole Alshon Jeffrey, 2010. Uh, and and he's not going to be playing in the postseason, I would assume, that, that that is a guy who is going to be coming off NFL draft boards earlier rather than later. And now for South Carolina, the page kind of turns to next year. And the question will be asked. It will be asked, and he knows it's coming. Shane Beamer, hot seat. Five and seven, year three. It's kind of an automatic in the ICC that you're going to be on the hot seat in year four. Just is, no matter who you are. When you talk about in the offseason, getting down to business, that was the mantra, right? 
It's almost like the approach from the South Carolina side these first two years are, hey, we're going to have some fun with this. We're going to do the marketing stuff. We're going to do the full house spoof. We're going to do the office spoof. We're going to have fun with this because we're trying to show there's a fun place to come play football. We want to be able to recruit the portal. We want to be able to recruit the, the high school recruiting trail. All those things are great. And, and I applaud South Carolina for doing those things and being willing to, to lean into that. And we can get into the whole you know, culture versus climate debate, whatever. That's fine. I, I don't think there was anything wrong for doing that. But when you have that mantra of, okay, we're getting down to business. You got the Sopranos themed intro before ICC media days. And now is the time that you're going to take this next step in year three. And you go five and seven. Mm, it's tough. That's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. And I say that even though I think the Dow Loggins hire worked. And I think that it bodes well for South Carolina's offense moving forward when they move on to, to Lenore Sellers and Juice Wells, who said he was coming back. Um, I, I think that there are going to be some pieces that are favorable. TBD on the Clayton White defensive coordinator decision. Um, but I think South Carolina needs to embrace the portal even more. I really do. I think they need help on the offensive line. They cannot be so thin in so many areas. They need depth. They really do. It's great that your converted quarterbacks are that selfless and they're doing whatever they can to help the team. And I'll always praise what Joyner, what Doty have done. It's not a good look to have your converted quarterbacks playing such significant roles. It's not the way that Beamer drew it up. I wonder if they'll go out and get some more skilled players in the portal because Juice worked. Mario Anderson worked. You've shown that you can do this. Uh, Trey Knox, I think Trey Knox was about what I expected him to be. But South Carolina needs depth. It needs to get better up front or else the new SEC is going to swallow South Carolina whole. And this will be four years and out for Shane Beamer in Columbia. Mizzou, Arkansas. Speaking of games, I feel like they were about a month ago. Um, and speaking of getting swallowed whole, Mizzou did that to Arkansas. And look, does this game turn out differently if KJ is upright for 60 minutes? Eh. In hindsight, I'm kind of glad that he didn't have 60 minutes of that game. I'm glad that he didn't come back in after getting his knee twisted, whatever that play was. Of course, it was on a big run. <sighs> kind of amazed that it didn't happen to him earlier in the year on a, on a, one of those several sacks taken, but brutal development. Arkansas's home slate against real competition, probably worse than Vandy's. Probably worse. You beat an FCS opponent. Congratulations. You struggled with a slow start against Kent State. Then you blew two double-digit leads against BYU. You lost that game. You go five weeks without a home game because that's what the scheduling gods dictated for you. Consider it a way that, oh, the SEC hates Arkansas. I know. Shout out John Neighbors. But then you come back. The Mississippi State loss. <sighs> Fire Danny Nose. Fans are excited. They're, they're buying back in. Maybe we can go to a bowl game after you beat Florida. You keep the, those hopes alive. And then getting smoked by Auburn to be down 21 nothing in the middle of the first quarter. I, and the FIU thing, all right, sure. But Mizzou, your borderline rivalry. The one that when the schedule comes out every year, I bet Arkansas fans, at least 90% of them, count Mizzou as a win no matter where that game is played. I bet they count that as a win, 90%. May, I might even be too low on that. They went up 41-0. 41-0. Arkansas is bad this year. It's a bad football team. Couldn't even win the fight on the field. Drink seemed pretty pretty upset with Arkansas showing 
uh, as he said, showing up to fight and his team showed up to win. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case, probably some guilty parties on both sides of that. Mizzou is playing in a New Year's Six Bowl unofficially. They will be playing in a New Year's Six Bowl. They did so because that defense, even a bit banged up at linebacker, they made life hell on that offense. And also, Cody Schrader exists. 27 carries, 217 yards. The guy is unfreaking believable. He's not going to win the Doak Walker Award because Ollie Gordon has had an even better year. He had another huge day on Saturday, five touchdowns for the Oklahoma State tailback. He's been awesome. But would I rule out Cody Schrader being an All-American? I would not rule that out. I really wouldn't. He's not going to get Heisman love. I don't think he's going to finish in the top 10 of the Heisman. I don't think he will. But still, shouldn't take away from, from just a remarkable season. And the story is just so awesome. You've heard about it every single broadcast. If you've watched this Mizzou team over the course of the last two months, he could have, depending on what happens in the bowl game, he could have the best SEC rushing total of the last five seasons. That's kind of crazy to think about too. The best since Trevion Williams at AM. Yeah, crazy. Not too shabby. Mizzou could finish as a top six team if it wins the bowl game. And obviously, like some things, conference championship weekend can happen. Who knows the way the New Year Six plays out. But a top six finish for Mizzou, I think, is on the table. The drink extension. It's coming. $9 million club. He's going to join it. Just wait for it. It's happening. All right, let's end with Vandy in Tennessee before we get to some yarn. Nah. Don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this one. I'll be honest, I was a little bit more glued to the Iron Bowl than this one. Uh, Joe Milton was brilliant in this one. Great senior day. Glad that he got to have that moment in front of the Tennessee fans for the final time after uh, an adventurous three years that he has had there. But cool to see him kind of go out like that. Clark Lee, I think, lost his mind at one point. When those fights were breaking out, I have never seen Clark Lee lose his cool like that, ever. Saw more rivalry week fights this year than any in recent memory. I wasn't wasn't tracking those quite, but unofficially, man, it felt like every single game of watching. Lauren and, I, Lauren and I always say to each other when a fight breaks out during a game or something like that, just like chippy, chippy, getting chippy. Uh, that was that was every game we were watching. Tennessee finally got the explosive passing game, the explosive passing plays going. Um, the good thing for Tennessee was that even though this was too little too late to salvage the season that you thought you could have doing that in this game allowed us to be able to see a more full dose of Nico first sec action for him. Fans got excited, 12 pass attempts. Uh, he wasn't just out there to hand the football off. They actually ran offense, which was fun to see. Love to see him start the bowl game. I don't think that's going to happen. Hypel's just been so loyal to Milton. So I wouldn't bank on that. Tennessee bowl game. I would imagine is going to be in Orlando in the event that the Citrus Bowl says, you know what, LSU, we had you last year. Let's let's kind of shake things up. But who knows? I don't know. Um, when you're eight and four, I don't think that's really going to make or break plans. I would assume that Tennessee is going to be coming to the Sunshine State for a bowl game. And hey, Tennessee is going to stay in the top 25 in that playoff poll. Maybe help Georgia's one loss resume. I don't know. Whatever Whatever Georgia can take at this point. I think it would like to get as much as they would like to deny that and just pretend like 13 and 0 is the only possible world in which it'll be living in. But yeah, Tennessee, I would expect to still be in that playoff top 25 after just a very, very dominant win against a Vandy team that lost 10 in a row to end the regular season. Uh, Kansas story Lee had those conversations coming out, vote of confidence for Clark Lee. Not great. Not great. Mm. 
I'll be interested to see how many SEC coaches are going to start the year on the hot seat. That's what I was trying to figure out. As I argued coming into this year that it was a lot less than people thought because of the buyouts. And look, when my alma mater, when Indiana is paying north of $20 million to fire a football coach, I think I need to personally rethink how I look at these buyouts. But even without getting into the nitty gritty with that, I think Clark Lee will be on the hot seat despite that extension. There's probably a lot of ways in which they can get out of it. And I think if after four years, they really are sitting there, you know, three and nine, something like that, I think they will move on. And that would be a frustrating pill to have to swallow. But Beamer, I think, will be part of those conversations. We know Pittman's going to be part of those conversations. We know Billy Napier is going to be part of those as well. I think there are at least four, at least four. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of where you would probably start. Four's a lot. Four's a lot. 25% of your coaches on the hot seat. For a brief moment with Stoops to AM, those three hours, of course, I'm digging up all these different things, trying to figure out the ramifications of it. There was a moment in which I thought, wait a minute. I tweeted this out too. The only SEC coaches who would have been at their current schools during the 2010s decade, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart. That'd be, that'd be it if Stoops were going to a and but as we found out, that was not in the cards. All right, let's end with some Yarna. Yarna, Ohio State will be ranked ahead of Bama in the playoff poll Tuesday night. Ohio State will be. I think they will be, and I think Bama fans will have a reason to feel frustrated with that. But I think Ohio State will be at that sixth spot, and they will basically say, Texas, Bama, you're still going to be locked in at seven or eight, because I think Oregon... Like Ohio State's not going to be the top ranked one loss team. I think Oregon will be. And I think the way that they'll play out, the way that they've set that up in the past is, well, you know, the incentive, you know, you have to win your conference championship to move up ahead of team X with Ohio State being idle. Obviously, Bama and Texas would have the chance to improve their resume and Ohio State obviously does not. So my guess is initial guess is that Ohio State would be at six despite the fact that I think Texas and Bama have better resumes than what they've been given credit for to this point. And I think the selection committee has kind of just been a little bit lazy in examining those. And I, I do like that they haven't been super reactionary all the time, but I, I, I think that there are ways that they could be looking at these one loss teams that would be a little bit more critical instead of just saying, Oh, status quo. It's pretty crazy that the top eight, it's still going to be in the fifth playoff poll heading into conference championship weekend. Nobody will have left the top eight because I think Ohio State is going to be at that six spot. I don't think they're going to fall all the way out to nine. I don't think that'll happen. So, yeah, Bama fans will be be frustrated. Who knows? Maybe that's what Bama fans want. Get a little bit of extra motivation going into that ICC championship. Not that they should need it. Yeah or not, Michigan will be number one. I'm going to say nah. I'm going to say nah because while I continue to be impressed with what this team does on the field in these games that for the first six years of the Harbaugh era were their kryptonite and they have totally changed the script. Michigan is now, instead of being the team that's arguing about that one play that didn't go their way against Ohio state, which I thought that fumble at the end, the, fu the fumble that wasn't that Michigan fans are probably saying was an incompletion um on Ibuka, I, I thought that was going to be that moment and i'm gonna be like oh my god i'm gonna have to listen to michigan fans for the next 10 years tell me about how 
that actually was an incomplete pass and not a catch and fumble. Um, but instead, Michigan just wins these games. They just win these games now. And Connor Stallions are not. They're winning these games. So I don't think Michigan will get moved up to that number one spot. I think Michigan will stay. Will will we'll go to what Ohio State was at. I think they'll be at two. Um, but I think that makes probably more sense. And if you want to say, well, oh, Georgia only beat Georgia Tech by this amount of points, it's like, all right, Georgia still has the better resume than Michigan. I would still give Georgia the benefit of the doubt in that regard. Yarnow, Michael Penix, Heisman hopes are over. I think they are. I actually think I, I'm, I'm going to say yeah. I'm going to say yeah on that one. Maybe I'll get cold take. Maybe he'll look awesome in the Pac-12 championship and voters will have this realization that, oh my God, this guy beat Bo Nix twice. We should have been talking about him more. I actually think if Washington wins the Pac-12 championship, that is a positive development for the Jaden Daniels Heisman chance. I do. Because I think Bo Nix has been better than Penix. I do. And, and I've watched both of them, tried to watch both of them pretty closely. I love the player that Bo, that Bo has become... And I know he he gets criticized for the average depth of target. It's it's different than Jaden Daniels. So I'm not I'm not saying that it's the same exact thing. And the rushing has it's it's surprising that Bo Nix has become this player, and he's not as a rusher what Jaden Daniels is. That that to me, like if you had told me when that oh one day Bo Nix is going to live up to the hype and then some, I would have said okay, well he's going to be this unbelievable dual threat. And said it's almost a little bit Baker Mayfield ish with how he uses his mobility to extend plays and um, the things he does in, in that area. But yeah, I'm going to say that that Penix, if he wins the PAC 12 championship, I'm going to say the best he can do is second. I really, I really think that. And, and I think that there would probably still be enough momentum for Jaden Daniels, the 50 touchdowns thing guys, when, when people sit down and actually look at how ridiculous the season he had is when you're seeing the side by side comparison, 2019 Burrow through 11 games, man. Uh, it is is unreal. So yeah, I, I will say that Penix Heisman Heisman hopes are probably over. I do think he could be as high as number two, but I think Washington is really similar to what TCU was last year. And maybe it's like the you know the Max Duggan thing. Maybe he ends up being runner up or, or something like that. Okay, plan for this week. Will is expected to be back. Hopefully he makes it back from Europe and, and everything is good. Um, plan is to have Feinbaum on. Still kind of working out the details to be able to set that up. Might have to pivot if his schedule gets crazy. Who knows? Um, but that is the plan to be able to preview the SEC championship. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SES Pod, at Set Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.